We're under the stage now. Uh, it's very spooky. What's your name? Barry. I'm with Barry. He's uh, at the event, like me, just hanging out. Ladies and gentlemen, we All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to get gonged in a minute here. I'm here with... Uh, Phil Crosby. There you go. There's no name on that. So, Phil Phil Crosby? Yes. All right. That's almost a little too close to Bill Crosby. <laughs> I think he'll... Phil. I think he'll survive. <laughs> Lauren, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to see you here, Tom. Tim. Did you just call me Tom? What happened there? <laughs> I thought that. Yeah, You want to start all over? No, no, I like it. It's good. <laughs> This is, holy God, a beautiful voice chart. Really? Yeah. I have a beautiful voice chart, folks. <laughs> uh, you got to see this. Wow, she's calling over her, her partner here to check it out. Bill. Bill. She's Bill calling Bill over. I Apparently, Bill, I've got a, I've got a top-notch voice chart. You have a oh very, powerful, very powerful being. Wow. All right, nice. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Alright, here we go. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, we're here at the East Coast Paracon in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. I'm talking to my good buddy, Lauren Coleman. We've been hanging out, talking a little baseball, but uh, he's leaving soon, so i got to make sure I get the interview in. Lauren, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to see you here, Tom. Tim. Did you just call me Tom? What happened there? <laughs> I thought that. Yeah, but... <laughs> you want to start all over? No, no, I like it. It's good. <laughs> so what do you, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing here, the presentation, all that good stuff. Well, I was invited to speak about Bigfoot, the Eastern Bigfoot, which specifically because of the native peoples is called Wendigo. And a lot of people, of course, always want me to talk about did I see a Bigfoot? What Bigfoot have been seen around here and stuff like that. But what we have to look at in Nova Scotia and eastern Canada and also Maine is there's a historical record, which doesn't mean that you're going to turn a corner of the street and see a Bigfoot crossing. Right. You know, from your, What you're going to see is more often than not records, historical traditions, even some native art. And that's just as important to establishing there's a Bigfoot as you know, a current sighting on right, YouTube exactly. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. If anything, it's actually strengthens the case because, uh, they, you know, the, the historical record, you, they're not trying to, like, you know, they're not making things up for, for attention, is what I mean, you know what I mean? Exactly. In the age of YouTube and the Internet, there's so many hoaxes, there's so much bad data that actually we need to get away from some of that to get better photographs, better casts, better historical records that actually validate what we're looking for. And I think that's why you don't discount the historical record as some people would and only want to go out in the woods and howl and beat on a, <laughs> beat on a tree with a baseball bat or something, you know. <laughs> So what's your what's your if you, if you know what's the temperature what's the feel of, of uh, you know Bigfoot research right now what's going on what's the latest? Well, I think it's a 
if you look at the whole history of the ufology and how there was in the 60s a lot of interest a lot of fights and then infighting and then all of the division you really see a, a correlation between that and kind of what started happening in the 80s and 90s in bigfoot research a lot more people got interested there's lots of tv shows so what does that bring in? It brings in fringe people, which I call Bigfoot contactees. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, the people that say that they're giving donuts to Bigfoot. Or seen a lot of that now. Blueberry, you know, muffins, whatever the menu might be. And, <laughs> and, and you know, you, I'm not discounting that, but I want them to bring evidence. You know, once, if you're in contact with a Bigfoot family for 50 years, could you at least take one picture of them? A family picture, maybe. <laughs> Uh, or if you're, say that you're going to an area and leaving food out for Bigfoot, couldn't you take a plaster cast of a footprint? Right. Uh, so it's just validating all of these contexts. And a lot of the people are saying, no, we don't want to tell you where it's at because we know that you're going to go over there and kill them and stuff like that. Well, there's lots of Bigfoot researchers that really have, in many ways, uh, aligned themselves and committed to not kill, you know, the no-kill right. no, no exactly. kill faction. So I think that's invalid. We don't want to take reports from people. We don't want to undermine people. We just want to make sure that science actually verifies this creature so that then you can get the protection. So I think it's, it's like any other adventure and any other venture. Uh, the Bigfoot field right now is populated with a real continuum of fanatics, of contactees to all the way to scientists. Uh, when I started out in 1960, there weren't any academics except for maybe one or two. Right. And now you can't go to an anthropology department without at least finding one or two you know, professors. She may be interested, he may not be. But you'll find interest and open-mindedness in a lot of departments you didn't find in you know, that middle time. Right, right. Now what about the, uh, what do you think of the the Bigfoot like media boom is it is it is it still sort of percolating is it kind of dying down a little bit because for a while it was like they, it was everywhere uh, now I'm not sure I don't I don't keep as close an eye on it as you do so what's the what's the sort of state of that I think that unfortunately what's really happening is as opposed to as opposed to it going away in terms of the physical let's go out there find a Bigfoot uh, shows like Monster Quest Finding Bigfoot which really had a scientific point of view yeah I love Monster Quest yeah are really kind of disappearing and what you're getting is a lot of fictionalized docudramas uh, and they're taking creatures that are found other places and putting them domestically so that they don't have to film that their expenses <laughs> yeah, are low. Yeah. then the other part is because they think at least the producers directors executive producers think that the public wants more paranormal they're making Bigfoot into some kind of psychic Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. And so that's also a new trend in the field. It's not so much the shows are going away, but they're changing. I don't think right. we'll see Finding Bigfoot after the next year, for instance. I think that that kind of has petered out. I really believe it or not, I, I like the show Bigfoot Bounty yeah. because a lot of people thought it was real gimmicky and kind of Bigfoot joined Survivor. But that gave us an insight into the researchers. And I really like investigating the researchers, understanding the people. Uh, Bigfoot may be out there, may not, but we certainly know the researchers are. And they're fascinating. You know, the, the hunters have all kinds of different viewpoints, different motivations, different 
um, ways of looking at the phenomena that sometimes can be as fascinating as the creatures. Absolutely. Now, uh, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, the, the big sort of thing, the big thing was like the DNA. It was, that was the thing. It was like, see, people seem to like put a lot of stock in the, it was the DNA. The DNA is going to be the, the key here. And that seems like that didn't go anywhere. I'm not even sure. Uh, the psych stuff seemed like it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, has some holes in it now. They're kind of going after, uh, the psych stuff. And obviously, you know, the whole other thing, uh, I forget her Ketchum. name. Yes, the Ketchum. <laughs> Ketchum Ketchum. Yeah, the, yes, yes. The Ketchum debacle. That was, that was a whole mess. So, are, is, is DNA, should we just kind of like leave that to the side and, and, you know, wait till we actually have the Bigfoot and then look at the DNA? Because it seems like maybe we're putting our, the cart before the horse here. No, not at all. I actually think that the DNA phenomena is worthy of pursuing. I think that if you read the Sykes books and review them and critically like I did, what you find is that he made several mistakes. He really looked at it as a scientist a biochemical scientist, a geneticist, but he didn't really look at it in a context of the rest of the biology. I've spoken to some biologists, and they really feel that he went halfway, and he actually made some mistakes, like saying that it was in a certain sequence for Pleistocene bear, polar bear, when in fact it was a modern polar bear. But that's incredible. Why are they finding polar bear DNA in the Himalaya? Uh, the other thing is he, if you read his book very deeply, as I did, he actually found some samples that showed that one of the human samples was really from, um, you know, Eurasia. Yeah. And why would that be in the, the American sample? Right. The other thing was the Pambouchet finger, which is extremely interesting, uh, you know, found in Nepal, really old. We knew all of that. A couple of years ago, when they rediscovered it and they found it, they immediately, all the skeptics and debunkers, threw it out because the sample came back human. Well, Sykes actually tested that and found out the reason it was human, it was contaminated with Peter Burns' DNA. And that's fascinating because that means that you get rid of the contamination. What is the real bone? What is the real DNA in that bone? Is it, is it a llama? Is it a, you know... Unknown primate, is it something else? But there's lots of mysteries in the whole DNA that's still to be revealed. It's just a lot of people got scared by Ketchum and then Sykes' stuff with his mistakes have made it really hard for people to say, well, we're going to trust DNA. Also, there's the true believer factor. Uh, all of these hair samples were sent in, and people thought immediately Sykes is going to say, it's a new primate. And it came back, you know, cow and a hairbrush and a whole bunch of stuff. Right, right. He was very truthful about it. And that's where you got to start, and then eventually we'll find something. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. So, like, people, they sent the stuff in, then he's like, no, it's a cow. Then they're like, get the hell with this guy. Right, yeah, exactly. They're like, <laughs> he doesn't know he's on. He's on a mission to debunk, that right, kind of thing. exactly. Now, what's the, give us an update on the museum. What's going on at the museum? you got a big uh, exhibit coming soon this summer, or it's already there. I'm not sure, but you can give us an update on that, the, uh, the Iceman, right? Right. Well, today is August 8th, mm-hmm. and actually... Uh, the Museum of the Weird from Austin, Texas, is delivering today. Okay, 
the Minnesota Iceman, and it's going to be there for six months. Nice. So that's very exciting. It's uh, we're you know not increasing the admissions. We're just kind of reconfiguring the museum. Uh, part of the agreement of getting it is no photography, so that's very hard for us. But we're doing that and committed to keeping it uh, safe for them and insured and security and all of that. But it's a, a great exhibit. We got new exhibits coming in all the time, like we got a life-size four-foot-long model of a tassel worm from the Alps. saw that. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. a real exciting. And other things uh, are happening, reconfiguring, doing a little tribute to Ivan Sanderson and, nice. uh, because he was connected to the Minnesota Iceman. And then uh, we're, we're really exploring uh, moving uh, in about... Um, you know, half a year, nine months to another location in Portland with that. more space, with actual new library, uh, research library with a little patio for study and different things like that. And we're still exploring. Well, we have a conference in January uh, in St. Augustine, Florida, because, you know, a lot of people don't want to be in Maine in, in January. So. <laughs> and we don't either. So we're going to do the conference down there. It's very marine-oriented, um, marine land of the Pacific, uh, marine land of the Atlantic. Actually, started there, and it started as a film studio, but also it was connected with the discovery of the coelacanth, the giant octopus in 1896. So we're having experts from all over the world come in and talk about some of those things that are really neglected because Bigfoot gets so much attention. Nice, nice. All right, so that's in January. Whatever happened with the, the African event, that got canceled because of the Ebola, right? Was they concerned about that? It got canceled for Ebola. It got put off because, and that's Jeff Meldrum's. Uh, yeah. You know, we were going to be committed to that, but it really, $6,000 a person. That's uh, yeah. And then, you know, their travel and, and all the commitment of the time to be away for a month, it, it just didn't, you know, that's why we actually started doing our conference uh, to make it more available to North Americans and South Americans. It could get there closer. The other thing I think, if you look at it, um, a lot is changing with regard to safaris in Africa. Oh, after, yeah. you know, after Cecil was killed, and um, and it's not really related to what Jeff's doing, but you can see there's a shift going on. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like the Confederate flag of Africa. You know, there's, 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 there's really a uh, yeah, a lot of photography uh, safaris are still in place, but uh, people are really looking at things differently about Africa. Yeah. And uh, and Ebola is still a danger, mm. and other things too. And so uh, a lot of people don't want to go. Yeah, yeah, you take your risks down there, yeah. Uh, I think we're. I think that's about it. Any any thoughts on the uh, dismal Red Sox season for the, for the baseball fans who are listening? Well, I can't even say this season that we can wait until next year because it looks like... <laughs> It looks like the rebuilding is going to take a while, but yeah. you know, we, you and I love baseball. We'll always be Red Sox fans, and uh, there is hope that somebody else will kill the Yankees. That's all we. That's that's what we got to do. I cheer for two teams: the Red Sox and whoever whoever beats the Yankees, right? Yes. Exactly. All right, Lauren. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, I can come up to the. I don't know why I'm shaking your hand. Yeah, here. No, we're on the radio, but. <laughs> no, I was thinking, feeling the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Please do come to Portland, see the museum, see all the new exhibits. Uh, 10,000 items. Absolutely. Well, I was telling somebody, uh, I was there like the first week it opened when you yes, first sure. opened it. I still got the opening opening week and T-shirt. That was, that was only 500 square feet, and since that time, we've expanded six times that yeah. in size. And 
many, many, because once you open, it is very much like if you build it, they will come. And the exhibits have come, the visitors have come. We're really happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm happy for you, man. I'm so, I'm so happy for you. And I'll, I will definitely make the trip up there, folks. So thank you, uh, Lauren, for, for doing this little interview. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Looking for ghosts, looking for ghosts in the basement of a theater. All right, there you go. I'm here with Andrea Sahadeh, and uh, she's here in the vendors section with some really interesting stuff. I posted a picture of it on the Facebook earlier, and I promised them I'd come and investigate it today. So I'm here now to, uh, to check it out. So tell me a little bit about what, what all this is. Uh, it's some, some very esoteric-looking material. <laughs> esoteric. It's kind of neat. So the one aspect we're doing right now is the computer will take a voice sample. You say a silly phrase, basically vowel sounds. The computer goes in and it analyzes your voice. It looks at your patterns and your physical, your energy field of your emotional state, your mental state. And it goes into a library and it says, what do you need to help let go of the stuff you're carrying? And all you got to do is listen. So the computer goes in and it analyzes a billion bits of data. It produces a pretty chart that kind of shows, you know, patterns that exist within you. And then it creates a 24-minute set of frequencies that you can choose to take home uh, or download. And you just simply have to listen. And it's about helping us shift patterns that we have in our lives. So, you know, we always have fears or anxieties or that kind of stuff. So it helps dump that stuff without having to necessarily go through talk therapy or any of that kind of stuff, you just got to listen. And they're weird. I mean, they're not musical. They're like, so they're kind of, yeah, no, they're very unusual. They're very frequency based. And you can play them while you're on the computer, um, cooking, cleaning. Like, you don't have to sit still because, you know, people will say to me, well, I don't want to sit still for 24 minutes, you know. <laughs> well, then you don't have to. <laughs> now, where did you, how did you learn about all this stuff? Yep. So uh, three years ago, uh, I live in Toronto, actually. Oh, okay. So I went to a yoga show, and there was 200 vendors. I had an hour. I found it in the first five minutes. Wow. And so I was about 44 at the time. And I'd experienced a lot of stuff in my life. Toronto's kind of a dense city, so it's kind of interesting at times. And I walked up. I did a voice sample, just like we were talking about doing today. And I took them home. And I recognized in about 12 hours that things were changing. So don't don't laugh, but I cried for an hour and a half. Okay. That was laugh. <laughs> it's okay. But it was important for me because I'd stopped crying, right? I'd locked every emotion inside of me. So what happened was I thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. It was kind of out there. So I went to a group event. So uh, I went uh, and experienced these along with using the technologies that we haven't talked about, where we can take sound and we amplify it by running it through coils and noble gases. So they're causing an energy field. So I went and I hung out for like three hours. We did a group session and I kind of went, wow. And it it felt right, it kind of got me excited. I found it fascinating, so I just pursued it more. And I ended up uh, buying one of the technologies and putting it in my house. And I could see the difference it was making to me, uh, my family, my life. Things were flowing more easily. Um, 
I wasn't as scattered as I used to be. I was more focused. So uh, I began to play with it. I just explored it with him. Uh, at another show, I kind of watched how people responded. And so I began to get engaged, and that was three and a half years ago. Wow. Now, what's this? There's a white, I got a white tube here uh, that's, uh, that's hooked up to your phone. What is this white? It's like a white cylinder. Uh, you know, folks, they can look at the picture on the Facebook, but what is this white cylinder here? So all of the technologies, this is a portable technology. So in this white cylinder, there's a specially hand-wound copper coil and a tube of five noble gases. Oh, wow. So there's actually xenon, argon, helium, krypton, and neon. And then there's a few other, uh, like, herb, uh, flower essences and stuff. So what happens is it's actually not my cell phone. We, it looks like one, but we use it as a player. So there's a very specific list of frequencies. So instead of plugging it into a headset like you would normally listen to music, um, you're plugging it into the coil. Oh, it's like a speaker. Right. Okay. It's an energetic speaker. Wow. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of frequencies. So what's happening is I'm playing a clearing track right now, trying to get rid of uh, low vibrational energies. I mean, some of that is just from Wi-Fi and EMF and that kind of stuff. There's concentrations to help us focus better, digestion frequencies, heart opening frequencies. So there's a whole playlist. Yeah. And the concept for the portable is that you actually keep it with you. So I've actually taken it on an airplane. Oh, wow. Um, I keep it with me when I'm driving in the car, that kind of stuff. And, it and just it's helps playing me. now, but I can't really hear. Is it because it's loud in the room? Or? No, it's not intended to be heard. Oh. It's about actually creating energy. So sound is really powerful hmm. when we hear it, like music, right? Think yeah. of how engaging music can be. So what was discovered, though, is when you push sound through a coil, whether it be in a portable one or a larger one, they're creating this beautiful, coherent energy field that's designed to do various things. So the sound is not as important as the energy. Energy goes deeper. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of the premise. All right. All right. Yeah. Can we do a thing? Can we do me? Yeah, I'd love to. All right. I'll, I'm gonna, I'll shut off my... Well, I don't know. Well, let's leave it on here. How do we do this? So what I'll do is I'll put this here so you can keep your mic and you can right. ask me questions. Okay. So basically, it's a silly phrase. Mm -hmm. The vowel sounds, A-E-I-O-N-U with B's and H's in front of it. So I'll get you to do a bit of a practice run, and then we'll do the real deal. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So cool. I just read this. Okay. Yeah. Baby, bye, bo, boo. <laughs> hey, he, hi, ho, who. Yep. Perfect. So this time, he can. Thank you. All right. On the other hand, you're going to hold this one. Okay, now I hold this mic. All right. Really close to your mouth. How close? Like this oh, close? Yeah. All right. And now this time when you say it, you're going to keep saying it over and over until I say stop. All right. And do it more like we're having a conversation than uh, monitor. Okay, you and just co you coach me and let me know when. Ready? Okay, you all right. Go for it and I'll just tell you when to stop. All right. Go for it. Okay. Baby, bye, bo, boo. Hey, he, hi, ho, who. Bay, bee, bye, bo, boo. Hey, he, hi, ho, who. Bay, bee, bye, bo, boo. Hey, he, hi, ho, who. Everybody right. always makes wants to finish. Yeah, yeah, it's like OCD. It stops in the middle and you're like, okay. All right, so, so now you've got my so sample. Taking your sample. And what it does is it goes in and it analyzes your, your sample. And what we're going to do is I'm just going to save your sample because sometimes the computer likes to give me a little bit of heat just in case you disappear on me. Um, so these are all the different places we've traveled. Oh, wow. We actually have, tra we travel Canada. 
nice. uh, sharing this and finding uh, where it resonates for people. So just your first name. Uh, Ted. Ted. No, Tim. Tim. I am, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> and then we save samples because if people actually listen to their frequencies, generally they'll see, feel and observe changes in their life over time. Really? And we'll see the changes in their chart. So um, this is, holy God, a beautiful voice chart. Really? Yeah. I have a beautiful voice chart, folks. <laughs> uh, you got to see this. Wow, she's calling over her, her partner here to check it this out. Is Bill. Bill. She's Bill calling Bill over. I Apparently, Bill, I've got a, I've got a top-notch voice chart. You have a uh, very gosh. powerful Very powerful being, honey. Wow. Yeah. All right, nice. <laughs> very sensitive being at the same time. Yeah. That's so amazing. So we'll go through this, and then if you wanted, you can let me know. Then I would create a CD, or we can upload it onto a server, and you can download your frequencies to listen to. So I could actually play them right now if you want. Yeah. Whoa, interesting. I could actually play them right now. So what we'll do is I'll start creating the CD, and you can choose to listen or not, and then I'll tell you what I see. All right. You ready? Yeah. Let's and you can welcome to take a picture. <laughs> You yeah, can also put, like it a on a, of, uh, put it on a server and you can download it too. Of this thing here. There we go. That's good, yeah. Yeah, hon, you're... <laughs> All right, interesting. Okay, so I'll give you some of what it normally shows. Hey, you want to take a picture of us, uh, you know? Take a picture of us, baby. Take a picture of us doing this, so, it, you know. <laughs> All right, interesting stuff. Kind of like pretending like you're... What's that? You're like pretending you're into it? I am into it. I'm interested in this. This is cool. All right. So I'm just going to grab this. We can get that out of here. Here we go. That's all I need. So basically. Yep. Okay. I'll be able to edit all these at home anyway. Clean it up. So all this. Hey, all right. No, no, no. I know. I know. Okay, not literally. Oh, no, no. Okay. So it breaks it into kind of like a symphony. The first octave in your piano or your chart or your symphony is your physical body. And so height doesn't matter as much as balanced. We're going for balance here. Yeah. So the computer will analyze the peaks and the valleys and say, okay, what specific frequencies does Tim need to help harmonize so that his he, he flows better? I see what you're saying. Right? Yeah, yeah, does yeah. That, I, it makes sense, yeah. So the first one is your uh, physical body. We don't do a lot of time analyzing the physical at all. Um, the only thing that's interesting that we generally have seen is this one spike here. Yeah, that's a big spike. Is a big that? spike. Generally tends to mean that you're fighting a bit of an infection right now. I am hungover. That'd work. All right. That would, that would make sense. <laughs> so the body's in, working in overdrive a little bit, okay. trying to help you in some way. All right. I've never tested it when I have a hangover. I'm doing that next time. Yeah. That's, that, that might be the that I've might seen be it the in other case. times. I've never thought to test it when I've had too many. I, 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 I was in my cups last night. We'll put it that way. Yes. I understand. So that's kind of what it is. So the body's energetically working to help balance that right now. Okay. That makes and sense. So uh, the frequencies are designed to assist in the rebalancing. Um, so there's the next one is your emotional energy body. Um, and so, you know, notice you don't have the same spikes, but you've got a few. The most dominant is in an area what we call the G-sharp. 
so um, tends to be that in your emotional energy body there's stories or patterns or beliefs um, sometimes focused around you're spreading yourself too thin potentially right now may not see yourself um, as important and you may have moments where you swing from low self-esteem to really big highs. Okay. You're really powerful yeah, and then yeah. you kind of dive and okay. disappear, I call it. Yeah. And that's, the, that's, that, that's this line here. This that's one a big here. One. Yeah. Yep. All right. Interesting. The other one that I'll pull out is kind of the C and the C sharp in your emotional. So it's kind of, you know, um, maybe struggling a little bit with survival. Uh, might be secretly uh, hard on yourself. You don't necessarily uh, share that with others. Uh, you may struggle with low energy, which is kind of consistent with this spike. Um, I would also say self-power issues, really being the real you, expressing yourself. So then you go to um, the mental body, which is interesting because the spike in your emotional body is the same as your mental. So it's, that's not always common. Right. Um, so it means you're also thinking a lot, right, about issues, about um, potentially creativity. Mm, okay. um, uh, criticism, kind of sensitive to it is how it, so you think a lot about it. Um, struggling to make choices um, and might, uh, might struggle a little bit with addictive behaviors. Oh, yes. Okay. These are, these are all hitting... Hitting, <laughs> hitting home. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Yep. And I don't even need to know, which is the best part, right? So... Now, let me ask you this. Yeah. Uh, it's all big here. Then it goes, is there a reason why these are, like, so little? So, yeah, no, it's a great question. It's common in 99% of the charts for it to kind of do this. Okay, yeah. In fact, in your chart, the reason that I'm, you know, thinking, wow, what a powerful chart, is I actually don't see the height you have. Wow. Yeah. Nice. I mean, most people in the tail end of the chart, we barely get a reading. Oh, really? You got a lot of presence, is how I would describe it. So this next block, which you think is small, is actually quite powerful. And it's about your spiritual journey, your soul's journey, depending on your beliefs pattern. And the largest spike is questioning why you're here in the first place. What is your life? Your life. What is your journey, mm. right? And following that journey, what's that passion? The other big spoke again is around the throat. <laughs> you got a lot of things to speak about, honey. And so, <laughs> so there's a little bit of you. Um, we call it um, learning to surrender to your personal will, to your actual journey, connecting to the soul, getting beyond the mind, yeah. sorry, and following sorry. that real journey. Um, also, um, trying to discern would be the word, truth over deception. Ah, okay. If that makes sense that makes to you. makes sense, yeah. The other spike is around the heart, uh, learning to let go, trust, and accept unconditional love from others. Okay. It's as though you may not trust, and so you're blocking. Your journey is to let go and love. That's right. how I would say that. Okay. Interesting. This, this last one is amazing. This last one, we kind of call it, you know, what are your guidance tools to figure out your journey and what the heck you're supposed to be doing? And, I mean, you have a number of them, but there's uh, three predominance. One is gut instinct. You're getting a, a gut instinct, you know, those guttural moments. You're like, yeah, i right, got to right. go for it, man. Yeah. Those are your guidance tools. Those are the ones you're supposed to be following, not your head. Okay. 
The other is your heart. If something opens your heart, makes you feel more passionate, more exciting, excited, that is your guidance map to go for it. may okay. not be what you expect the result to be, mm, yes. but that's kind of your journey. Uh, the other is you are intuitive. Uh, intuitive to me means you're getting, um, it could be uh, um, thoughts, pictures, everybody absorbs it differently, uh, feelings. I'm a feeler, so it's hard for me to put into words about what you should do. It doesn't come from the head, does not a logical decision. It's like, oh, shit, yeah. that's what I should be doing. So you've got those gifts. Your trick is to use them more. Left right. head, more gifts. Okay. So what the computer's gone in and done, right, is um, looked at those patterns within you and produced a 24-minute set of frequencies. Wow. They're, they're interesting. I actually, I can play them for you uh, just so you get a sample. But they're, they're basically a minute long and then a break, a minute long and a break. And they'll change. They go from high to low to wiki-wiki, like they're yeah, yeah. very different. But the more you're willing to listen to these, what it's going to do is pick up on some of those underlying patterns mm. that we just talked about because they're typically associated with experiences or stories yeah. that have been uh, ingrained in our being that that really would be so much nicer if we could let go of that shit. Yeah. And yeah. that's what this is doing. Interesting. Yeah. Now, who came up with all this stuff? Yep, that's a great question. So, uh, a, a, the, a gentleman by the name of Robert Loy, originally Canadian, um, now lives in the U.S. Him and his uh, beautiful partner, Helena Riley. This will be the culmination of 40 years plus oh, wow. of this life's work, where he began uh, experimenting with sound, uh, also in water and in technology. So what you're seeing is really the coming together in the last, say, five plus years um, of all these different things to help people... Um, let go and move forward in their lives in a very different way. Yeah. Um, she's a little ahead of her time, as one might say, but uh, yeah, they're in their 60s. They're beautiful, beautiful people. All right. Yeah. Okay. I think. Uh, what else? We should you have, you got a place you can you got a website or anything you want to direct people to? Sure. Or? Um, to to a couple of things. You can learn more uh, by going onto the website, uh, clearlyconscious.ca. You know, Bill and I travel the country. Uh, we're actually doing an event in uh, in Nova Scotia while we're here, and we'll be back. Nice. So you can always just sign up and say, yeah, I want to know when you're coming back. So we do group events, fairly inexpensive. Have you been down to America yet? Um, we have not, but there's a number of people sharing it okay. in the U.S. Uh, my partner's been to Norway, Denmark, oh, and all wow. over, and in Canada. Nice. Uh, we just haven't been, we would say, called or led. We've been mm. just hanging in Canada. Yeah. All right. There yeah. you go. All right, Andrea. Well, thank you very much. This is really interesting stuff, and I'm gonna uh, I'll, I'll give it I'll, I'll give, give it a, it a listen and, and let you know how it goes. Okay. I'd All love right. That. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Oh yeah. I see a horse here. So a lot of horses. Here's one of a very uh, <laughs> very erotic drawing of a woman. And another. Oh wow. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're here at the East Coast Paracon, and uh, we're talking with an old friend of ours, and I was thinking about it outside. Uh, ten years ago, this past April, we were in a very similar situation for my first ever interview, and I 
I harassed you and harangued you and got you to <laughs> sit just like this. It's like deja vu 10 years later, and uh, we're doing another conversation here with our, our good friend and, and hero to the program, Stan Friedman, of course, the star of the holiday special. Uh, and uh, I don't even know where to begin. How have you been since we talked to you in December? Well, I had no more glimmers of a heart problem, so I'm I seem to have recovered fully from that. You know, I had a heart attack last June. Uh, 2014, and uh, they put in my stents, and I haven't had a problem since. <laughs> stents problem since. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and I've been traveling around, and uh, I, I've been busy. I'm thinking about another book. Kathleen Martin and I are talking about another one. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking forward. I'm going to be in uh, Portland for a conference coming up. I'll be in Exeter for their 50th anniversary nice. special. And I'm going to be at the MUFON conference, and I'm going to England. Awesome, awesome. Now, one thing I was, I, I really enjoyed your presentation, and uh, what I was wondering, uh, how, having seen it, was the, you mentioned how it was in all these papers, Roswell was in all these papers after it happened. How did it end up kind of falling, you know, uh, and obviously there was no internet back then, so, you know, people wouldn't have found it, but how did, how did this, this story end up falling through the cracks for so long until it, it reemerged, uh, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s? Well, it only reemerged because I got lucky when I was interviewed and somebody mentioned it who knew uh, Jesse Marcel. And uh, it wouldn't have reemerged. And the kicker was that once you start looking, you found that, that it was in lots That's of newspapers in a very narrow time frame, though. Mm, just like a couple days. In yeah, July. a couple days, yeah. That's it. I mean, they put the kibosh on it so quickly. The California... the. Uh, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, I think it is. They had both stories, the, the Army captures flying saucer, and General says it's radar weather gadget, and the same issue because of the time zone, <laughs> right, you know. Yeah. So, And that was, look, the, the original story came out too late to make it to the East Coast papers. It only came out from Chicago West. The cover-up story made it into all the papers. Okay. So it, that was the end of it. You know, no big deal. You'll find Frank Edwards' book, Flying Saucer Serious Business, mentions Roswell in a paragraph and got most of the information wrong. And the uh, NICAP put out a uh, 1947 wave book about the, all the sightings in 47. And they have one paragraph. And again, he only looked at the, the cover-up stories, not at the original yeah. story. So it, it, it wasn't any place where people would know about it. And I was just lucky. I mean, once you have a date and you know where to look, then you can find uh, stories. But uh, living in Canada, it's not easy to get American newspapers from special dates anyway. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, So it, it stayed out of the, the gutter until I got involved. Uh, and that wasn't until 1978. Right, right. And, you know, right now I've got a DVD here, uh, Recollections of Roswell, more than 20 first-hand witnesses and their mm -hmm. testimony. They're all dead. Right. So you can't go back and, you know, find all these people. So it's just, I, I just got lucky. Actually, I was steered into it twice. Lydia Sleppy, there was a guy in California, forest ranger. I was living out there and heard about his sighting and talked to him with uh, Bobby N. Slate, who was a co-author on some 
magazine articles that I did. And uh, he said, he had a good sighting, a forest ranger, so he had a good view of the oh, world, yeah, nice. you know. Yeah. Uh, he said, you really ought to talk to my mom. She had a great sighting in Albuquerque. Okay, Lydia Sluppy lived in Albuquerque and uh, called her. And I don't know how we got onto it, but she told about her sighting, which was a good case. And then she mentioned this story about their Roswell affiliate radio station. Mm -hmm. She worked at a radio station in Albuquerque. And she'd been called, their Albuquerque station had been called by the Roswell affiliate. And the guy wanted, they didn't have a connection to the newswire. AP or whatever it was, but the Albuquerque station did. <coughs> so she called to dictate a story. She was called, and she wasn't a reporter. She was a typist, yeah. you know the things. But they're just like calling and saying, "Get get, get us on the wire." Kind of thing. Yeah, and so the guy is talking about there was a crash, and there was the wreckage was going to be sent to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and then she reports that. There was a bell went off, and it said discontinue this transmission, uh-huh. which was a, she'd never had that happen. So she talked, told the guy on the other end, "What do I do?" She, he said, "Stop." <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I talked to her, got as many names as she could remember. I mean, this is you know more than thirty years later, right. and so. Um, and I followed as fast as I could, as much as I could, I followed up on it. But I could only get so far, and, well, I don't remember was the response, or, you know. Uh, yeah, I remember vaguely, but I no specifics and so forth. And I finally gave up on it. So I was ready, in a sense, for when I heard the Jesse Marcel story. Yeah. But uh, I couldn't resist on Jesse. I mean, because of his position. Right, right. You know, as... as the intelligence officer for the only atomic bombing group in the world, that's somebody you want to listen to. Yeah, exactly. And then I got, you know, I must admit, I got lucky. I mean, I called the newspaper, asked for the, this is in 78, asked for the editor from 47, long gone, what do you need? I tell her, well, I've got uh, some articles here. It says the base public information officer. I didn't even know the base had been closed years before this call. (laughs) Uh, I said, a guy named Walter Howe taught, his name is spelled four different ways, and the most shocking statement imaginable, his wife works here. What? (laughs) Well, the guy's from Chicago. He was there in 47, based there. He loved it there, raised his family there and all that sort of thing, but it was a total shock, you know. And Walter, uh, and I talked to the wife, and then I talked to Walter, and then he had a copy of the base yearbook, which helped. One thing leads to another. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he was very helpful. And I did a lot of checking on Walter, talked to people in town casually, you know, this guy and stuff. And I only heard good things about Walter. And, you know, small towns, people have reputations. I mean, they can be bad or they can be good. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And Walters were good. And he was—he had sold insurance, and that usually means pretty trustworthy because people won't buy from somebody they, yeah, yeah. they don't trust. And he, he managed an art gallery, oh, nice. too. Uh, so that was very lucky. And the other thing I was lucky about, I called information and asked if there was anybody named Brazel, the rancher's last name. 
And the gal says, in what town? I said, I don't know, just southeastern New Mexico. Okay, well, she looked. She said, oh, I've got a Bill Brazel in Carrizozo. I had no idea where that was, so I asked her, is that in southeastern New Mexico? And she said, yes. <laughs> well, it turns out, uh, my I was working closely with Bill Moore at that time, and he had tried to find a Brazel uh, like three weeks earlier. And would you believe uh, he hadn't been listed yet? He didn't have his phone yet. Oh, wow. So I got lucky in my timing. Right, exactly. So you got lucky is, uh, is the point you were making. Yeah. I mean, luck happens to those who are waiting for it, right, you know, exactly. if I hadn't make the, made the attempts. but uh, And there were other things along the way, but uh, mostly you got to be persistent. And, and that's the thing that uh, I've been to 20 archives, some of them many times, like the Eisenhower Library and Truman Library, places like that. And... It's kind of funny. A lot of papers are at the Library of Congress Manuscript Division in Washington. And General Twining's papers were there. Well, the first time I went there many years ago, they, most of it was classified. You just get, it's not there, you know, not yeah. accessible. And I would ask for declassification or three or four boxes. And the next time I go back, they'd gone through them, and mostly stuff was declassified. Uh, and I finally, it was not the first, second, or third time, but I think the fourth time I finally found his flight log was in one of those boxes. I didn't know that. But it's nice to have confirmation of who was going where when. Right, right, right. When I say in the Majestic 12 document, for example, it says that Twining flew to New Mexico in on uh, July the 7th, 1947. Well, I got his flight log. I can prove it. Yeah. And I, when he left and so forth. And then I had found his pilot's flight log, too. I found his pilot, his daughter. He asked family members things, and uh, she was helpful. The daughter was helpful. He not only telling me his pilot's name and that he lived in the Washington, D.C. area, so the next time I was there, I called, and, <laughs> yeah. and there he was, and met with him, and he let me copy his flight log. She also told me that General Spatz, who was Air Force Chief of Staff in those early days, uh, I had his desk calendar, and supposedly he was in Port Aransas. Now, he was based up in the Seattle area at the time, and I, I couldn't find Port Aransas up there. So I asked uh, Twining's daughter, and she mentioned, oh, that's down on the Gulf Coast. Not far from Corpus Christi. Yeah. And uh, she said, oh, the, the Air Force generals, a lot of them would gather together and fishing. <laughs> well, the pilot had told me they liked to talk to each other when there was nobody around. Right, yeah, yeah. And so uh, fishing <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. is a good idea. Well, to, go, yeah. to verify that, <laughs> I called the Corpus Christi newspaper, and I said, for this week... Uh, July something to something. You got any articles about General Spots? Unusual name, so easy to find. And it turns out one of his people was a fisherman who there was a picture of him having caught a large fish. <laughs> and it fit right in that time frame, so yeah. clearly he was there. <laughs> and one of the phony MJ-12 documents 
had said something about his meeting with um, Twining on a certain date in a certain place, and I could prove that he didn't. Mm. He was someplace else. Right, right. And certainly the, the newspaper article saying that the, his first officer, whatever he was, w was there is pretty good evidence. Yeah. 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 So he, it takes persistence and it takes luck, but one of the things is that you sort of race in the Undertaker with the Roswell, with the Roswell stuff. I mean, people die. What, what can I say? I'm going to die too. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. No, it's, it's just <laughs> you mean you can't find somebody? I said, no, he died. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Sorry, but uh, uh, at least I did talk to an awful lot of first-hand people, and I think that's important. That you not just depend on A said, B said, C right, said, right, right. you know. And it's documented, and it's like on the record now, you know. Yeah, and it's like Twining. I uh, I paid somebody to uh, check the Alamogordo newspaper for this period of time, and uh, sure enough, the front of the paper had articles covering up, explaining away the disc, hmm. and I believe these were General Twining's people. And so it made sense, but clearly they made an effort, and he was running the show. Hmm. So it's, it's kind of like with Dr. Donald Menzel of Harvard. I had to get his wife's permission to look at his papers at Harvard, plus two other people. And so uh, he never told her anything classified. That's not what I was looking for. But to discover, to my total shock, that he had a longer continuous connection with the National Security Agency. Uh, he told Jack Kennedy in a letter. Yeah. So I've got that in writing, you know, from him. <laughs> and we are properly cleared to each other. I can tell you more, Menzel saying to the president. Wow. Well, they knew each other, and I, so I was able to find out stuff. But uh, And I get people giving me a hard time about Menzel. He was a debunker. How could he be part of this crazy MJ-12 group? Well, okay, he was doing stuff nobody knew he was doing. But I was able to show that he had been a world-class cryptographer. Uh, he knew Kennedy not only on a first-name basis, but tells him, you know, he can tell him more about the NSA and stuff like that. And people who say it couldn't be, I, I try to make them aware that we have many examples of people who led double lives. Right. Just because he was a debunker, what better choice for a debunker than somebody who really knows the truth? Exactly, yeah. And to stay away from exactly, the truth, yeah. you know. Because he would know who was who, who needed to be gone after the hardest. Yeah, and and so uh, it, people want to do their research by proclamation. I prefer investigation. There you go. From you the know. rules of debun for debunkers, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's important to me because... I get, uh, MJ-12 is a good example, I get people attacking all kinds of details that they really didn't know what they were talking about. And it's not just Phil Klass who talked about the pica type proved that the uh, one document was a fraud. Nonsense. Uh, he'd never been, I found out, I checked, he'd never been to the Eisenhower Library. And he's telling you that uh, they only, the National Security Council only used elite type. He had nine documents to prove it. Well, they've got 250,000 pages of NSC stuff there. Right, right. 
nine to 250,000 is not a good sampling, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, and I got other people, and I, about Menzel, I know of nobody who's gone to his papers to look at them before they complained that he couldn't have been. Right. Uh, and damn it, don't tell me what you theorize or what you believe. Give me some evidence, facts, data. And so, to me, it's a challenge. Uh, and But the MJ-12 papers explain something that really needs explanation. The Bolander memo, General Carol Bolander, Air Force General, who was an engineer in the lunar excursion module, had nothing to do with Project Blue Book, and in 1969, because the Condon people said, uh, we should close Project Blue Book, it's not contributing anything, and I agree with that. Uh, so Bolander, who had worked on the lunar excursion module, we landed in July. I do believe we landed on the moon. <laughs> and uh, he was asked to come up with a recommendation. And she wrote a memo, which we didn't see for 10 years. It was a classified memo to begin right. with. but And I think it was inadvertently released with a bunch of papers that Bob Todd had requested. So they, you know, yeah. sent him all this stuff. And I think that got in there when it shouldn't have. But anyway, in it he said something very extraordinary. He said, reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with JNAP, Joint Army-Navy Air Force Publication 146, or Air Force Manual 55-11, and are not part of the Blue Book system. Now, that's an extraordinary statement, because we've been told for all these years that Blue Book yeah. was it. And two paragraphs later, he says, if we close Project Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures designed for that purpose. So we're going to, if we close Project Blue, we'll still be investigated. Right, right, right. Well, but of course the Air Force has been saying since it was closed as a result of that memo that that's it. Ain't nothing more. Right. Forget about it. So I called, as far as I know, I'm the only one who talked to Bolander in the UFO research community. Uh, I like looking for people with unusual names. So. I guess so, yeah. Bolander's a lot easier than Smith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking that when you were doing the presentation. You lucked out that, uh, that you didn't run into any Smiths or anything like that. Oh, uh, boy. Uh, so I called him. Very nice gentleman. And I explained that I'd had a clearance for 14 years. been interested in the subject. found his memo quite fascinating. And so he'd understand that I knew about security and stuff like that. And I said, it sounds to me like you're saying that there were two separate communication channels. One for the stuff that could affect national security. And I gave him an example. I said, I just heard about a case where Saucer went down the runway as strategic air command base where nuclear weapons are stored. By definition, that's a matter for national security. You, you can't avoid that. I said, another wise, if my wife and I are going down the street and see a saucer fly over, big deal. It happens all the time. And he agreed with me, yes, two separate channels of communication. Well, the question is, so where did those reports which could affect national security go if they didn't go to Project Blue World? MJ-12 provides the perfect answer. And it answers another question. 
I have been wondering about why we don't get Navy reports. Several years ago, I had talked to somebody in the Navy history office. No, we don't have anything about UFOs. So I sent him a report that had been jointly authored by Air Force Intelligence and Naval Intelligence. Thank you for the interesting report, but as I told you, we have nothing. Now, ONI is the oldest of the military intelligence agencies. It's got a great reputation. The Navy covers the world, obviously. So where the hell are their reports? And I filed an Information Act request, and we don't have anything. This is recent. Mm -hmm. And yet I had just had a wonderful report from a former guy in the Coast Guard went into service, a whole bunch of guys on one of the Coast Guard ships out in the Pacific, had a very good sighting, and a report was filled out and sent somewhere. They don't know where. And so... I contacted the ONI after getting this negative response. They were polite. They were very nice. And she looked me up on the Internet and was interested. I couldn't send her one of my books because they can't accept uh, that kind of stuff, but she was interested. But it seems to me you'd only need one central office for Army, Navy, Air Force reports, which could affect national security. Why would you set up three independent groups? It's not a public office. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, you you can say, well, what would these guys do? Well, they would look at radar measurements, for example. They would look at close encounters. Uh, They would look at where people have made measurements or taken pictures with the instrumentation on board an aircraft chasing a UFO. Well, there's technical analysis required here. Why would you set up three offices to do that? It makes no sense. So the obvious place is that they went to Operation Majestic 12. Seems to make sense. Now... uh, well, it's interesting. We talk. You mentioned, you know, the race with the Undertaker and everything. It's this year Roswell had this sort of re—I don't know what to call it. It was back in the news, let's say, with the slides and everything. So I mean, oh, I'm sure that yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, I guess are you? Sur- I'm sure. Oh, okay. Well, you, you can <laughs> you can tell me that. But but are you ever surprised that were you surprised that oh this is like the people are still kind of trying to take advantage of the Roswell mythos and and and. For their own ill-gotten gains, perhaps. I got invited by Jaime Masson, and to his credit, he is, because he's a newsman in Mexico City, and he has asked for people to submit videos, Mm -hmm. he's put together big collections of UFO videos. So I give him credit for that, and I don't know how he got involved in these so-called Roswell slides. And he interviewed me in uh, Arizona in February and invited me to the conference. And I said, oh, I'll have to think about it. I'll tell you one thing. Considering the winter Fredericton has had this past year, last year, uh, a trip to Mexico City <laughs> sounded like a great idea, right. you know. But I, everything I'd looked up or for about these slides, I couldn't find anything that linked them with Roswell. Right, right. That was it's an interesting slide. I don't right, know what's right. in it, yeah, but not, even even if you if you just take the obviously I don't I'm not a I'm not I'm not a believer that it's an alien body in the slide. But even if you had that, it has no like you're saying it, it has no discernible connection to Roswell. Well, and also one of the things that bugged me is 
I can't believe any self-respecting scientist would have put an alien body on display, apparently at room temperature. There's right, no right. indication of there's refrigeration or anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about valuable biological specimens. Mm. You'd keep it around because your technology improves. Your ability to... We couldn't measure DNA oh, uh, so many yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't know how to do that. Right, right. And other tests on things. And I, I found an analogous thing when I was in industry looking at liquid metal-cooled nuclear reactors. You can transfer a lot of heat. But they had a problem. When they were using uh, a sodium-potassium alloy, sometimes it would corrode the metal and sometimes it wouldn't. But they couldn't measure what was in the, the fluid very accurately. When they finally pinned down a way to accurately measure the amount of oxygen in the fluid, it turns out that was the difference. But until you could measure that, right, right, you, right. you couldn't tell. So I can't believe with something like a biological uh, specimen like that. Yeah, like a once-in-a-lifetime. Yeah, yeah, you're going to keep that around, and any new technique that comes <laughs> along, you're going to try to use it. So that was one thing that, that bugged me. It's on a shelf, yeah. you know, with a display card next to it. Come on. Uh, you know, that didn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I finally said no, and I was pleased that at least Don Schmidt apologized. Mm. Now, there undoubtedly will be more discussion in September at the MUFON conference because I, I'm scheduled to speak there, but Jaime is also scheduled to speak there. Not about this. Oh, okay. He's yeah. showing videos. But this question is going to come up. There's no getting around it. I talked to the head of MUFON, and, yeah. you know, where do we go from here? So I'm sure there will be more discussion. And what can I say? Maybe it will encourage somebody else to come forward with real stuff. I, you know, I don't know. But you're right in the initial presumption that it clearly indicates that people are interested or there wouldn't have been this... This right, right. About exactly, this. Yeah. Yeah, it, it certainly became a topic of conversation. And, you know, uh, you can't control what goes on. And uh, I will give Jaime credit for collecting lots of videos. He really has. Because he's a major newsman in a major city. And he showed that if you ask people to supply him, you'll, you'll dig it out of the woodwork. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had a problem like that. I did a program up in Seattle by phone, radio program. And and the woman hostess said something like, well, how come there aren't any sightings around here? And I said something to the effect that, well, I'm sure there are. You just won't hear about them. I'll bet if you ask people to report their sightings, you'd get, oh, I don't think so, she said. And I said, well, why don't you try it? So we went to commercial, and when we came back, she asked yeah. people to and the phone lines were flooded with people with sighting <laughs> yeah. reports. I know because I've been out there. I know that that happens. Look, at all my lectures, at the end of my lecture, I ask how many people here believe they've seen a flying, what I would describe as a flying saucer. And typically it's 10%. And they're all surprised. And then I ask how many reported what you saw. 90% of the hands go down. Right, right. So, you know, there's a difference between getting a report and people seeing something. So... Uh, the public side of this question is is interesting because I spoke at a college class a few years ago. The instructor asked the students in the class before I got there, uh, 
what they thought about UFOs, and 80% thought most people didn't believe in them, and 80% of that group did. <laughs> so the reality, you know, yeah, yeah. It, the perception of the reality is very different, and the reality itself. Yeah. So uh, there's an enormous resource out there that hasn't been tapped, the Navy intelligence, oh, yeah. and just the public in general. And what is interesting to me is that the, um, the data from Kepler has excited a lot of people. Right. Because uh, there seem to be planets all over the darn place out there. Now, it will be interesting to see what happens with this big development of the Soviet billionaire, Yuri Merkin. Oh, yeah. He's, he's kind of... He's going to spend $100 million yeah. with the SETI people. Right. That's I heard that, too. It's which I think uh, is uh, what a waste. Right. Uh, but I, there's another side to that, and I'll sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I'm sure governments, Russian and the American, would much rather people were focused on radio and laser signals from out there mm. than the flying saucer data. Right. technology and yeah, yeah. what do we have to do here to catch up and you know all that sort of stuff so let them let them listen yeah. you know <laughs> but it would be nice if ufology got you know two percent of that right you think you want to spread your money around to different ways to do it if you're trying to yeah. you know, solve a problem and there's different different avenues to do it you would try it different ways well Stephen Hawking was with them and we have this interesting thing that Hawking has previously said that uh, we shouldn't send signals out because we'll let aliens know that we're here and maybe there's some bad guys out there like Columbus wasn't good for the Indians right. and so forth. Yeah, the only problem with that is that assumes if they can do us damage, they can get here. But he doesn't think oh, there's anybody... that's interesting. He, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. That, that, that's sort of crazy logic. Now, wait a minute. Uh, what... You're saying they can't get here, so we should listen for signals. Then you're saying if they hear something, they might come here. Well, so either they can or they can't. A little bit there, yeah. I didn't yeah. Think of that. And so the SETI people, there are a few primary areas where they are totally ignorant. One is UFO evidence. You never find references in their books to the scientific studies on flying right. saucers. Oh, we can't talk about that. The second thing that they know nothing about is government cover-up. You know, they're accustomed to, oh, papers appear in scientific journals that are refereed, and that's where research data goes. And they can't imagine that anybody can cover anything up. Well, the government's co covering up all the time. Yeah. It goes with the territory. Uh, you know, the 156 pages of NSA documents you can read one sentence on. Well, <laughs> yeah, I call yeah. that a cover-up, exactly, you know, yeah. or the dozens of uh, CIA documents about UFOs by their definition mm. that you can read a few words on a page or one of my favorite pages says deny in toto yeah. not one word you can read on that page <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's it's kind of weird that there is such general acceptance by the public you talk to kids and their first response is well we can't be the only ones right right it wasn't too many years ago that people were saying we were the only one. Mm. This is the only solar system. Yeah, yeah. And we're the only planet that obviously is covered with civilization and water and stuff like that. Uh, 
you don't get many people saying that anymore. Yeah, anyone who says it. Yeah, people who think that this that we're alone are usually, you know, they're kind of written off as, as being uh, living in the dark ages or something. Yeah, yeah. And now I must admit that there's another aspect that intrigues me is what I call sort of an anti-nuclear bias. Uh, in all the coverage I read about Pluto, right? That's exciting. I mean, yeah, it yeah. takes almost ten years to get there. And we, it's a weird-looking place. And, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. Uh, but none of the coverage mentioned that the power supply was nuclear. Oh yeah, I didn't hear that. There is a radioisotope thermoelectric generator (RTG). It's about a foot long and eight inches in diameter. It's got 24 pounds of plutonium in it, and that emits alpha particles which gets absorbed, raise the temperature, and there's a law of physics that shows if you get a temperature difference between two points, an electric current flows. Yeah. Thermoelectric. Okay. That darn thing's been running for almost 10 years, and it'll go for another 30 years. Wow. And I think people must think that it's probably solar power, but the solar intensity <laughs> yeah. at Pluto is one one-thousandth of what it is here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pluto's a good long ways away. I know. didn't even think about that until so you, so you mentioned that, how they Did you hear any comments? No, that was just news to me. And uh, Now yeah. that I think about it, it's like, well, yeah, I didn't really even give it any thought. You know? Well, most all of our really deep space probes use radioisotope thermoelectric generators. They're very reliable. There's no moving parts. Well, why do you think, why do you think they didn't... Why do you think... They, they just don't want people to know that, or why do you think it's just underreports, too confusing for them or something? It's concern. The, the word nuclear bothers some people. Uh, it's kind of like the, the Cassini spacecraft, which is out at nosing around at Saturn, been there for years. Uh, we sent that in to go past Venus to get a free kick, cosmic freeloading, I call yeah, 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 it. They came back past the Earth. Now, it had an RTG on it, and there were some people saying, oh, you're going to blow up the Earth if, if there's an accident when it comes back. Well, that isotopal plutonium is not fissionable. You can't make a bomb out of it. Uh, it's not cheap. This is not something you buy down at Walmart, you know, plutonium. But, uh, well, the other place where the, this shows up, this attitude, if you will, is when you get the SETI cultists talking about you can't get here from there, they keep talking about chemical rockets. Yeah, yeah. Well, wait a minute, guys. We've tested fission nuclear rockets on the ground very impressively. And there have been serious studies done of fusion for deep space propulsion. Yeah. And Fusions would produce all the energy in the universe, all the stars. That's the process. It's nuclear fusion. They're not burning gas up there. <laughs> I'm going to have to wrap it up because they're going to start rolling out. So I wanted to say thank you very much. I'm going to be hanging out with you tomorrow on the ride back to Halifax anyway, so I get some extra stand time. So thank you very much uh, for this and for everything you've done for the show, Stan. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. What's going on? Oh, just they're hanging up there. Journals is the only guy here. I thought you might have been a ghost there. I figured I scared you. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to get gonged in a minute here. I'm here with... Uh, Phil Crosby. There you go. There's no name on that. So yeah. Phil Phil Crosby? Yes. All right. That's almost a little too close to Bill Cosby. But <laughs> I think it's Phil. 
I think you'll survive. All right, now you, you showed the picture on Facebook. You got these four gongs. Uh, what, what is this all about? It's all about sound healing, um, balancing your energy, helping your immune system kick in, and for you to heal yourself, essentially. But most people find it very relaxing. So and if we find it relaxing, as I say, our immune system kicks in and our body does it for ourselves. But these, uh, three of these gongs are 38 inches across. They produce amazing vibration, and that can actually travel to a cellular level as well. Really? So, yeah. I can show you a demonstration with a water bowl. But if you think of ultrasounds, we think of MRIs, that's all resonance, bouncing off our body and taking measurements. This is actually sound waves that could actually travel in our bodies to our cells. And then we think about cell phones and the negative effect that they have. They're doing the exact same thing, but with a very negative effect. Ah, like, like a Wi-Fi in the air and that absolutely, kind of Absolutely, absolutely. So this is a harmonious, organic way to help your body recover de-stress and to heal. Interesting. All right. Okay. How'd you come up with all this? How'd you hear about all this? How'd you get involved with all this? Um, about 10 years ago, went to a wellness show in Liverpool in the UK, where we're from, and literally was blown away. I'd done Reiki. I'd been into meditation since 2000 after the big motorcycle accidents. That's how I initially got into it. And a guy there who looked not unlike myself with the shaved head, and he was a professional musician who'd got into sound healing, and he had gongs. Um, they had planet gongs such as these, and once you hear them, it's like just blew me away. So Yeah. Well, these things are massive. So you, tri you came all the way from England with these gongs? We brought four with us, and we've bought four since through the States. There's a supplier there, and they're made by Paiste, who make the drum kit symbols. Okay, yeah. Like the police, U2, Kings of Leon, all got them. Um, they've been making gongs for over 100 years, and they're tuned to the frequency of planets that are actually electronically tuned. Wow. Yeah. How do you, how do you, tra this is like completely like fourth wall breaking. How do you travel with all this stuff? Like, this is huge. <laughs> in our the van. Folks out. In our oh, van. Right. And that's why I say my, my wife married me, she just wanted a roadie. <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay, well, I'm going to get gonged now. All right, we'll okay. do it. Let's do okay, it. Cool. All right, folks, I've been gonged. It was pretty awesome. It was pretty amazing. Now, how do you, let me just, like, how do you, like, what do you do? Because it's like, what's the technique a little bit? It's how you can't, you can't even really convey it on radio, but, yeah. That's oh, wow. Made the sheepskin. And do you, like, just drag it across? You don't really, no. you don't bang it, do you? Yeah, definitely with them. It's kind of. Yeah. Oh, there you go. I see, yeah. All right, I just okay. That's interesting. Now these things, Tim. These okay, now he's got flumies. some small. So they look like lollipops. Yeah, made of rubber. These are called flumies. Yeah, and these flumies. Things, these things you do drag. Okay. So now those sounds that you maybe felt sound like whale sounds yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's them. Just put your thumb behind it, drag it along the gun. All right, let me see. Let's do this down here. Yeah. All right. Now I'm gonna do a, a flumey. Yeah. Okay, flumey drag. Wow, all right. Wow, see, yeah, because, yeah, it's amazing. It's really cool. You get bombarded with all these different, like, sound. It's like, it's really amazing. You know, you see the gongs and you think, uh, just the stereotypical gong sound. But then as you're in there, when you're, when you're getting the gonged, it's it's like all it's, you're bombarded with all these sort of different unique sounds. It's really amazing. Frequencies and it's the overtones that they produce, Tim. Yeah. 
and as I said to you before, they're electronically tuned, so they will actually take your brain waves down to a delta and theta state, that the, the state of deep relaxation on the border of sleep, almost instantaneously because of the physical waves that they produce. Okay. And that's what you got bombarded with. It was pretty awesome. Thank you very much, Phil. Uh, any place you want to plug, any, any website or anything like that? Yeah, just our website is soundbeings.com. All right, soundbeings.com. Check it out, folks. Thank you very much, Phil. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. There he is. What's that? He missed me. That was you singing? No. Was I heard some singing. Oh. We went down through the staircase down below to, the, to the, where the old jail used to be. Where's the jail? Uh, it used to be in front. Can you see? Does it like, look like a jail? Or? No. Wow. No. But there's some really neat costumes down there where we were taken in from the other side. Yeah, yeah, I saw. I think I went in there, yeah. It's there's like a funky head, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I saw a funky, like, head mask thing, and that's when I was like, okay, I think I've got a funky. <laughs> <laughs> um, but where? From up in there? Uh, no, we went down the stairs, right? Yeah. And then the you can get in from down there, from this side, though. You can get in from this side, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because that door's open. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got it up to three at one point Did you? a moment ago, but... Where were you? Right here. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. It was kind of flickering at one, and then it got up to two, like, right about before you guys came out. Here's a strange thing. Uh, I just took the girls up there, and we took a look at the props and all that that's yeah. up there, and came back, and a couple other guys wanted to go up forward. Yeah. Went to go back through the door. It's locked. Really? I was the last one through that door, and I can tell you that I didn't... You didn't lock it? No. Weird. That's weird. It's locked. You can't, like, from this side to go back in there, you can't. That metal door up here? Yeah. Weird. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're here at the East Coast Paracon. I'm with Kelly Connolly. She's part of the crossover... Paranormal Society. Paranormal Society, and she's... Uh, been a big part of putting this whole thing together, and last night she led the ghost hunt. Uh, people probably can see the pictures on the Facebook. So, uh, Kelly, I guess just tell us a little bit about, about yourself. How'd you get mixed up in all this paranormal stuff? I guess uh, I've always had experiences most of my life, uh, especially as a child, just didn't really know what they were. Um, in the early teens, I read uh, Helen Creighton's Blue Nose Ghost a couple dozen times, and uh, was just fascinated with legends, lore, ghost stories, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I also have a nursing background. I've been a nurse for over 15 years and have witnessed, seen, experienced different things that have led me to be curious um, and want to know more. And uh, two years ago, I joined the Crossover Paranormal Society, and we've been on many uh, investigations where things have happened um, that aren't explained. There you go. See, you're natural. You'll be fine. <laughs> Um, well, this is what, uh, one thing I found kind of interesting about the thing last night was the lights out part of it. I've never done a ghost hunt before, so uh, what's the what's the benefit of the lights out part? What's the what's the impetus behind that whole aspect of the ghost hunt? Which I guess for folks who don't know what I'm talking about, they just turn out all the lights. Yep. So what's that all about? Makes it more fun. All right. Yep. <laughs> Uh, personally, I think when lights are out, it makes all our other senses sharpen. 
so we can pick up on different things, feelings, sensations, maybe voices. Um, our eyes adjust to the darkness and sometimes it's a little easier to see the shadows, um, different things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And especially uh, the time of night, later in the evening, um, you know, it, it just seems to be a, a less busy time of day when we can pick up on different things. We don't have all that background noise, traffic, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so you think the lights out just kind of heightens the, yeah. the moment, maybe makes the ghosts feel more at home, like, oh, maybe they left? Yeah, could be. I've never asked them. And what's some of the cool or strange stuff you've gotten uh, from these ghost hunts? You, you told me a little bit about them uh, last night, but for the for the folks listening at home, uh, what kind of yeah. stuff have you picked up? Um, audios are best evidence, uh, so we carry audio recorders, so they're going during the entire investigation. Afterwards, we listen to the audio with headsets, and um, we pick up voices. Some things would be considered residual, so something that would happen time and time again. Um, other things are um, seem more intelligent. Uh, because we divide up into uh, different groups and do different areas and then switch it up, we know where our members are at all times. We know when we're on a break. Uh, we know that if those voices are there, they're not ours, then it's unexplained. All right. All right. Now, you said uh, last night you don't really get scared on these things. So that's a... Unless they're spiders. Unless they're spiders, Unless they're spiders. yeah. Spiders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what's your, do you have a favorite, give me like a favorite memory or moment from one of these things. Give me, give me, give me a little tale for the, uh, for the listeners. Maybe the one about the lady, uh, oh, Tommy, that's a, yeah. that's a good one. That's yeah. a good one. Okay. Right. Yep. Yep. So we did an investigation, um, it was an undisclosed site. It was a uh, business, uh, around the turn of the 1900s. Um, one of the, uh, rules there was that you weren't supposed to talk or talk, um, much at all. And um, actually, Clark, uh, Linda Rafuse's husband, was accompanying me on this investigation. And as we left the first story, heading up the stairs to the second story of this building, I heard a woman's voice in my ear. And I turned around to Clark and I said, did you hear that? So you could clearly hear me on audio, ask him that question. We didn't pick up that voice in audio, but immediately after I said that, there's a woman's voice that says, don't talk so loud. Pretty spooky stuff. Spooky, or she knows me, one or the other. <laughs> but Clark, he didn't hear any of this. No, no, he was behind me. Um, he didn't hear the woman's voice, um, but uh, the other voice telling me not to talk so loud was definitely audible in our uh, audio. And it was me, Clark, and another um, woman with us. So it wasn't her, it wasn't me. Pretty sure it wasn't Clark's voice. So, again, it's unexplained. We never go in saying this is what it is or this is what it isn't. We go in, we do an investigation, we take digital pictures, we do um, audio, we do uh, K2 meters, we use um, night vision cameras, trail cams, that sort of thing. Whatever we can explain, we explain. Whatever's left, we give to the client, and um, they can do with that what they want. And these are just people who like want you to come check out a location, yeah. right? Yeah, so they've either had experiences or they want validation or um, we've done quite a few um, businesses. We've done the Galley Restaurant in Chester twice. Ben and Jeff are wonderful people down there. Uh, they've got some of our evidence uploaded on their website. So that's quite a hot spot. Um, yeah, so people are just curious and they call us in. We go in, we spend a couple hours um, walking around, asking questions in the dark, taking pictures. Um, and then spend a good amount of time reviewing it all. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds like it's quite the uh, 
quite the undertaking. No, no pun intended. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, it is quite an undertaking. But again, we—it's um, a passion. We wouldn't be doing this if we uh, if we didn't really enjoy it. Especially staying out on a Saturday night till about two or three in the morning. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I kind of got the impression just last night because someone gave me the K2 thing. Yep. I was telling you, and it's like. Once it starts to go a little bit, it's like fishing or something. You kind of yeah. it, it can get kind of addictive. I'm yeah. like, oh, I'm up to three. Yeah. And then it's gone. You're like, no, no, yeah. come back, come back. Yeah. Come on, you know? And then light it up to red. So, um, and especially when you do a scan and you realize there's it's not being affected by electrical fields, um, and it kind of comes and goes, or it responds to you. So when I was asking it to come a little closer, light it right up to red, and it does that. It's kind of interesting kind of interesting. I'm the only member of the group and they'll all tell you I keep my investigation equipment in my purse, so 24-7. I guess I'm a ghost hunter, ghost investigator um, at heart. Have you ever like busted it out on your own, just like you're somewhere and you're like, all right, I got a weird feeling? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, that's probably why I keep it there. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, do you you get like an EV, you ever got like an EVP on your own or anything weird like that? Um, I don't usually use my audio recorder okay. a lot, um, but I will use my K2 meter if I pick up on something or if I am just curious, um, that sort of thing. But um, you just never know when it might come in handy, so yeah, it's always in my purse. Yeah. Now, I've been a part of a few of these different events, kind of in the same role you are, sort of uh, you know, being part of the organizers and stuff. And I know uh, I'm sure you'll have more thoughts you know, in, the, in the days and weeks to come, but what's your... You know, having almost wrapped up the weekend here, you know, what's your initial thoughts on on what it's like to, uh, to you know, put together one of these events and, and be a part of the folks, you know, that, that make it all happen? Um, well, it's been a little over a year in the, in the making. Um, we've got quite a few on the uh, people on the organizing committee. We'll, um, I think overall it's been a great success. Feedback uh, from the keynote speakers, our guests, um, um, people participating in the conference. The feedback is uh, all really good. So feedback sheets are really important. We'll take that and read them over, see how we can improve things, see what worked, see what didn't. And um, again, Best Western here in Liverpool has been been uh, great. They've um, bent over backwards for us, so uh, I think overall it's been a very successful weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's been quite the weekend. I just want to say thank you, Kelly, and, and thank you to all the folks you know behind the whole event for having me up here, uh, give me the press pass, let me run wild, and and <laughs> you know have some fun up here in Liverpool. It's been quite the weekend, and I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. We're glad to have you here, and uh, glad you could join us last night on the Ghost Hunt. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much, Kelly. All right. Thank you. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. All right. Thanks, Barry. Hey, you staying at the hotel? Uh, yeah. All right. I might need a ride. Okay. Thanks. Well, I don't think I can give you one. I got a little uh, roadster. I'll find someone to give me a ride.